You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Well, hello, everybody. Hopefully, you are feeling a little bit different this week than you did last week. Oh my gosh, what a difference Like those, uh, those couple of days make, right? Man. Well, thank you for joining us on this journey through independent music and the people that create it and put it out and create it. And did I say they created? Did they say creating? Because I, I think creating should be an important part of this. <laughs> Anyways, I'm just uh, I'm just happy because you know the election is. Uh, well, I was going to say behind us. I know that there's going to be so much stuff that is still going to uh, unravel in the next you know whatever couple of weeks. But um, we can all kind of you know take a little bit off the gas, so to speak, to be like, is this going to happen? Are we going to reelect this person for another four years? I, I sure hope not. So anyways, uh, hopefully you're feeling, like I said, much more at ease this week than you did the previous week. But we are here to not talk politics on this particular show, even though politics are obviously an important part of all of our lives and you should be politically engaged and active because I know that I have bummed out some of my family members as of late. And, uh, you know, that's just, that is what it is. But this week, is Chris DeMakes from Less Than Jake. Like, you can't get a more legendary band than Less Than Jake, right? And I just love how I can have a band like Less Than Jake on this week, and like last week I had Die My Will, a very relatively obscure (laughs) hardcore metal band. Like, oh, it's just great. I love independent music for that. But Less Than Jake, I mean, if you have not heard of this band, like, I I really don't even know where to begin with you, where it's just like, come on, Less Than Jake. I mean... One of the most popular ska punk bands of the past like 20 years, still active, still putting out awesome, awesome music. Uh, I personally was never a ska kid. Like, you know, I like my Operation Ivies and Aquabats and all that sort of stuff. But, um, you know, I never went too far down the rabbit hole. Not to, not because like I had some, you know, weird grudge against ska or anything like that, but it just, it just never grabbed me. I always liked the aggressive nature of it. And, you know, bands like Suicide Machines, love Suicide Machines. But Less Than Jake always was, in my mind, a cut above the rest. I just felt like they were not only obviously having fun with what they were doing, but, you know, really creating some uh, compelling music and, you know, one of the most popular bands in this genre. So when this opportunity came up to talk to Chris, uh, I was like, you know what? Yes. Like, even though not a ride or die super fan for Less Than Jake, and I know some of you that are out there might fall in that boat or might fall in the, I am a ride or die for Less Than Jake. But uh, Chris was a great chat, and uh, more on him in a moment. Let's talk about how you can get in contact with the show. 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, guest ideas, you know, just just fun stuff. And also, every weekend on my own personal Instagram, at xpurposex, I've been hanging out there and, uh, you know, talking about records, like going through my record collection, you know, showing some seven inches and it's been really, really fun. So I encourage you, uh, to follow along and it's like every Sunday I'll be doing it. And it's, it's been awesome because, uh, it just, it, it, it feels to me like I'm hanging out with you, (laughs) the listener. I know that we're doing it on a weekly basis on the podcast, but, uh, this is just another way uh, of engaging with independent music and going through records and just talking about that, that artifact nature of what it is that we all like about independent music so much. So anyways, come follow along with that. I would really, uh, you know, welcome you. And, um, yeah, let's just talk to Chris, right? Less than Jake, just just doing the damn thing. And uh, you know, they're now signed to Pure Noise Records, put out their last full length, if I'm not mistaken, on Pure Noise Records. 
and they've got some uh, they've got some cool stuff coming up. So let's just let's leave it at that. And here is Chris, and of course, I will talk to you after the episode is over, telling you what's happening on the show for next week. Okay, here's Chris. You know, less than Jake definitely looms loomed large in my life. As frankly, it was one of the uh, ska bands that I could uh, tolerate. <laughs> Coming from the sort of like punk and hardcore scene, me too. It, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> yeah, but it was it was one of those things where you know, especially in the you know mid to late '90s, as ska was exploding, there were a lot of bands that you know, frankly, just weren't very good coming from that particular scene. And I, uh, you know, was subjected to a lot of them being from Southern California. But the thing that I, I was trying to articulate uh, last night in my own head in approaching this this conversation where I was like, okay, I like Less Than Jake, but like, why? And ultimately, it was like the fact that you, you know, clearly didn't take yourselves too seriously. But then on top of that, there was still like a little bit of aggression behind it. Like it wasn't just, you know, hey, we're a bunch of goofballs all the time. Um, and I even saw you guys, I mean, I saw you guys numerous times, but, uh, the time that stuck out in my head was when you were on tour with, uh, you know, handsome and I want to say Guttermouth. Uh, I saw you at Santa Bernardino out here in California, but anyways, the fact, the fact remained that it seemed like you guys, that was the riot. Okay. Yeah. That, that's right. <laughs> yeah. With the descendants. Yep. Exactly. May I, that, 1997 San Bernardino at the airplane hangar out there. Exactly. The San Bernardino arena or whatever the hell they called it. You but got it. What contributes to the band's longevity is the fact that, you know, you guys didn't fit in anywhere and you were, um, you know, you could play kind of with anybody. Uh, does that resonate with you in regards to me saying that? Or is that something that I'm like way off base on? No, we we kind of, you know, wanted to play with everybody. You know, you got to remember, too, we we were never uh, included in that Southern California thing. We were we were it was made known to us very early on. And this isn't me crying the blues, but. We were outsiders. I mean, we were dudes from Florida. I mean, we didn't look the part. <clears throat> we loved punk music. We loved ska music. Um, but, uh, you know, we weren't really lumped in, lumped in with that scene. And uh, so we, we came from Florida. And when we started in Florida, we were one of like maybe three uh, ska bands in, in Florida in 1992. There wasn't many. And, uh, you know, we, we were playing with everybody that, you know, Pearl Jam sounding bands, grunge bands to the, it was still like the last wave of, of glam metal. And we were playing shows anywhere we could, we could cut our teeth at that point. So yeah, we, you know, that uh, statement rings with me just due to the fact that we never really not so much wanted to be pigeonholed, but we just wanted to, uh, you know, play wherever we could in front of, of any audience. Right. You're like receptive or not, we're going to play. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. And that was the thing early on in Florida for us when we were, we were, uh, uh, starting out, <laughs> I always made the joke. I'm like, okay, these people obviously don't like us and there's not a thing we can do to make them like us, but they're going to remember us and we'd piss people off, man. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> no. And honestly, I, I think it, it was definitely, um, you know, kind of apparent in your, uh, you know, and I don't want to use the word attitude like it pejoratively, but it's like, you guys were there and you're like, Hey, you can either join us or you can hate us, but we hope we elicit one of those reactions. Yeah. It was early on. I remember the, uh, the time it was, would have been around October 94. We played, uh, 
it was in uh, the Ritz in uh, Tampa, Florida. And we played with a band. They were a traditional ska band, good friends of ours called uh, Magadog. They were from Tampa. And uh, I remember Ed taking me aside at the show and he, he looks at me and he's like, man, he goes, you guys are really abrasive. and ed didn't he wasn't trying to be mean but he didn't mean it nice either (laughs) you know because because we were we went out and we had that punk and we were young we were we were stupid kids you know so we uh we were just trying to get a rise out of people and it was never from the uh you know standpoint of trying to hurt people's feelings but you know which we did sometimes but um you know we were just trying to to raise a little hell every night yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, and and I'll, I'll hit on some of those threads a little bit later, but, you know, I know I'll, I'll kind of kind of gloss over some of the, you know, biographical information because clearly you've been interviewed, you know, once or twice before. So I'm not tr- trying not to hit the same beats over and over, but uh, Port Charlotte, Florida. I don't, first of all, I don't even know where that is. Um, and second of all, I'm going to assume that, you know, everybody continually for most of your life always makes jokes about Florida being, you know, such a weird state in general. Yeah. So, <laughs> and, uh, you know, having traveled the world, I have a different perspective on Florida than probably a lot of people, you know, in the States that haven't done as much traveling as I have. And I'll get to that in a second, but yeah, Port Charlotte is on the Gulf coast of Florida. That's the Gulf of Mexico. It's sandwiched between Sarasota and Fort Myers, Florida, equidistant yeah. about 30 miles uh, from each, a uh, little retirement community, not much to do. Um, but in hindsight, it was a great place to grow up. It was safe. Uh, there was a lot of sense of community there. Um, wasn't much to do, but, um, it kind of, uh, uh, forced me to find things to do. And for me, that was, uh, uh, just delving into to music at a very young age. And <clears throat> so no, no regrets with that. And, uh, as far as Florida being weird, uh, yeah, I've heard that a few times, but, uh, you ever <laughs> been to Arkansas or Alabama? Yeah. <laughs> so true. everything everything's relative, you know. It's true. Yeah, when you when you have the basis of comparison to these other things, it's like, oh yeah, we're normal compared to these other weirdos. Yeah. <laughs> well, Florida is a, a transplant, a transient state. You know, there's uh, people from the north go there to retire, and uh, you know, so it's a very transient. They've got a uh, you know, especially Southern Florida, big Latino community. So it's kind of a melting pot for a lot of different folks, and. Uh, so yeah, it's it's uh it's got its merits mm-hmm, and absolutely. its faults. Of course, of course. The I, I was going to mention this a little bit later, but the, you know I think it's apropos to bring it up now. Where uh, I always found Gainesville uh, in general to be such a weird city because you have this backdrop of everything that you were experiencing musically from you know No Idea Records and the scene that you were you know being raised in as far as Less Than Jake is concerned um, you know and then you have bands like Hot Water Music and you know Asuk and Combat Wounded Veteran but like you guys all play together Uh uh, like we were alluding to within the backdrop of a very um, you know sort of sports centric bro centric college um did you, I I guess, kind of feel that weird dividing line between like, okay, here's where all of us, you know, punk weirdos are. And then, you know, here's all the, the kind of normal college people are kind of, you know, not really because, you know, Gainesville is like the, one of the only, at least on the last election map, it was one of the only blue spots in Florida, you know, again, lots of retirees in Florida. So it's a very uh, Republican state. And when I got to Gainesville and 
you know, back to, to start college when we, we formed the band, it was like another planet for me. You know, I've been yeah. out of, I've been out of Florida. We go, go every other summer to visit my relatives in Michigan where I was born and, you know, all my, all my aunts and uncles. But as far as like extensively, I, I had never been west of the Mississippi. Um, I had never been really anywhere. And, um, going to Gainesville, it was just like this Mecca. And, uh, in terms of what you're talking about, uh, you know, a lot of the the folks that were the the more sports centric, and that was more the campus crowd. And uh, campus is about uh, about a mile from downtown, and downtowns where all the action was for for the punk stuff, pretty much the the venues that were down there. And then you had the what was known as the student ghetto, which was kind of across the street from campus, and there was a ton of punk houses back there that we'd throw parties at and, and have punk shows, and so. Um, you know, it was like any other uh, fabric of, of of society out there. You had this faction and this section of people, or what have you. But, but uh, it didn't really feel um, as uh, I don't know. It, it kind of felt like there was there was unity with with all parties there at that time. At least that's how mm-hmm. I felt. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I I mean, I've only really I traveled through Gainesville like on tour or you know attending the fest and stuff like that. And it def- it is interesting to see the juxtaposition of those two things but to your point you know they can coexist amongst one another it's not like you know each group is like targeting one another you know even though i'm sure there was some of that but it's like you know yeah well just do your thing and you know we're fine no and you know and kind of go to your point of we didn't sound like other ska bands i mean i've always joked that you know we're we're a pop band disguised as a a punk band and and we are you know the melodies roger and i the way we sing the chord structures the horn parts we always tried you know maybe not so much early on but it was always a big thing to not make the horn parts hokey you know it's like you know we wanted to have the horn parts be extra voices and have melody and have have thought behind them and early on we were attracting you know people in sororities and fraternities and people that wouldn't necessarily be associated with the punk scene that were there amongst the punkers in Gainesville and there was never any fights or any any that I remember or any like huge things like, oh, there's this group over there and there's this group over here. It's kind of like, you know, at least like at that time, all the, you know, the regular normal Joes and the fraternity guys, uh, they were used to seeing guys with green mohawks and bones through their noses walking around town. So it wasn't that weird to be in a room with them seeing a band. Right. <laughs> no, it's a good point. Um so, you know, as you were growing up and, you know, like you said, in a very sleepy retirement community, you know, and as you were discovering music, when did more independent minded music start to kind of come into your ecosystem? I'm going to presume a lot of that, you know, was uh, just before you getting to college and stuff like that. But how did it get intro to you? Yeah. So, you know, being from where I was at pre-internet, um, you know, I had to walk uphill to school and uphill back home. I'm that old. Um, but, uh, you know, pre-internet in at that time in Florida, you got your music um, through MTV and through what was on the radio and what was at your local record store, which we were lucky to have one uh, that's been there forever. I'll give TJ's records a shout out. He's still in Port Charlotte. Um, and TJ tried his best. He, you know, but uh, we had, of course, the Camelot in the local mall and Sam Goody or whatever it was. But, you know, there wasn't much uh, a way to really find out about underground stuff until um, I met, uh, you know, started palling around with a couple guys in school who said, you know, Hey, check this out. It was a cassette and this would have been around, I was around 14, uh, 14 or so. So this is getting into the late eighties. And, uh, a friend of mine said, check this out. I said, what's that? I said, it's, it's a band called the misfits. And, um, that really struck me because I remember, 
you know, the sound quality this, well, first of all, the cassette was just like probably like a fifth generation. So there's a lot of like white tape hiss and it's just sounded like complete crap. But through it, I was hearing these songs and this energy and I was like, whoa, this is different, you know? And then from there, it just like someone had a circle jerks record and someone had a, you know, uh, agent orange record. I remember my buddy was really into that band. And, um, you know, then I met, um, I met uh, our old drummer, Vinny, him and I grew up in Gainesville or excuse me, in Port Charlotte. And, um, we went to high school together. So I had known Vinny since I was 15. And when I first met him, um, he's almost four years older than me. So he had been ordering, uh, and, and, and reading stuff like maximum rock and roll and flip side and ordering, uh, uh, mail order stuff through lookout records and all these different labels. And when I met him, the floodgates opened and that was early 89 that I met him. And, uh, then it was game on. Then it was like, oh, wow, there's this whole other world. And, uh, you know, those magazines were essentially my internet back then. You'd, you'd get the magazine every month, you'd comb through it and be like, oh, there's a review of this band from wherever. And you'd start reading it and, you know, they sound like this band meets this band. You're like, that's cool. And you'd put your three bucks in an envelope and mail it off. And two weeks later, a seven inch record would show up to your house. Yeah. Well, and it's always exciting too when you have, kind of that partner in crime where you're able to bounce stuff off of each other and that discovery mechanism just, you know, it rolls downhill at that point. Well, yeah, you know, and, and at that point it was kind of like, you know, I had nothing else to gauge anything by, (laughs) but, but these six or seven knuckleheads that were into punk rock, it wasn't like it was this homogenized thing. You know, this is before offspring hit before green day hit. Uh, This was a full, you know, five, six years before all of that happened. So, um, you know, it was just kind of all new and exciting and they're in, and, uh, I don't know, it was a, it was a, it was a great time. And it, but at the same time I was still listening to, to Metallica and Motley Crue and Neil Diamond and stuff my parents were into because I grew up in a mu- musical household. So my parents were musicians and, uh, so music was encouraged. And I mean, I listened to everything from new wave to dance music, to Slayer, to Neil Diamond, to the beach boys, to Motley Crue, to the misfits. And I loved it all equally. And I was never like, I have to listen to this one kind of music. Mm-hmm, sure. Or, or the idea that as you grow up, you're supposed to peel away the more youthful layers to your music listening. It's like, no, it's all part of the same stew. Well, that, you know, I mean, and there was things that I, did, I didn't give a chance that I found later in life, you know, like YouTube being one of them. I just, you know, people were into them. I'm like, ah, oh, that sucks. And, and <laughs> uh, you know, I remember in the, in the early 90s, I hated Stone Temple Pilots. I was like, what is this? This is just bad regurgitated grunge music. And, uh, and and later on, I ended up playing a festival with them in Europe uh, with Less Than Jake and uh, top top five live bands I've ever seen in my life. Scott Weiland was just like, he was godlike. It was just an experience that I, I couldn't believe how good they were. And uh, at that point, JR, our sax player, he, he was always playing them on the bus. And I was starting to like a song here or there and really hear the chord changes and really hear what these guys were doing. And uh, when I saw them live, I was sold and and I'm a huge fan. Yeah, you're like, whoops, uh, I missed that one. Missed that one. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Let's do this. Band merch is important to you, right? I'm wearing two pieces of band merch right now as we speak. I'm wearing an incendiary hoodie and a Touche Amore long sleeve. And you can find maybe not these specific items of merch, but so much more at rockabilia.com. Use this code PC100Words. That gets you 15% off your order, which is an amazing promo. Do it up. It's only for listeners of this show. Like, you can't find that discount anywhere else. So, 
PC100 words gets you 15% off your order at rockabilia.com. Half a million items, great customer service, fast shipping, independently owned business, all officially licensed stuff. I could list you 15 other th- reasons for you to want to buy merch from Rockabilia, but I'm going to stop that list there because you're just going to be overwhelmed by the sheer choice that they have on there. They got scarves, they got beanies, hats, anything you could possibly want for these winter months. And let's be honest, the holidays are right around the corner. You need to start thinking about presents for your brother, sister, mother, father, friends, whatever it is. Buy it right now from rockabilia.com using the code PC100Words. That's the letter PC, the number 100 words, and that'll get you 15% off your order. Thank you very much for your continued support, Rockabilia. Order stuff now. People, I presume, would look at you know how you are as a person, you know, on stage and as an adult in, in some respects. Uh, of as a kid, like maybe you being the kind of like you know class clown, cut up, like that sort of stuff. What what kind of kid did you find yourself being as you were you know starting to find your own identity? I was exactly that. I was the class clown cut up. I um, was always making people laugh, always found humor in things. Um, but I would have pushed it a lot further had it not been for my father. <laughs> Cause dad, <laughs> you know, there was a, there was definitely, um, discipline and, um, not violent discipline. It was just, I had a respect for my father. I, I had a healthy fear of him and didn't want to let my mom and dad down. So, you know, I, I would, I would push things right to the brink of, okay, if I do this one more time, I'm, I'm going to get suspended, you know? So, um, I kind of knew what, where I could push. And, uh, you know, my dad, um, kind of, kind of always said he had the best of both worlds. He was a musician and, and, uh, he kind of lived vicariously through me with this. And, uh, he was also, he played uh, baseball for the Detroit Tigers organization in the early seventies. And my brother went on to play baseball at North Carolina state, uh, had a great, great collegiate career there in baseball. And, uh, but I was also a, a baseball player. I was, I was pretty good. Um, I was on the, uh, played all through growing up as a kid, played in the high school team. And so I had sports and I had that discipline that came, came along with that. And, uh, you know, um, I was, I was a good kid. I never went out and like, um, you know, party to whatever I saved all that till college. Cause again, it was, it was, it wasn't accepted for my parents and, uh, I wasn't a rebellious kid. I was just a, just a suburban teenage knucklehead that liked to have fun. Sure. That's uh, that's funny that you, you know, your dad had these different touch points, and then you know, in regards to music and sports, and then being able, like you said, to live vicariously through you, and then you know, obviously through your your brother as well, being like, oh wow, I'm seeing them be successful at two things that I love. That must have been a pretty um, you know, special and I guess bonding experience. Oh yeah, I mean, it was you know, it was great, and you know, my parents. Um, they were never like partiers when we grew up, but like when I got into college and, and when I would started the band, I would come back uh, home for holidays and stuff. I would find myself out with my parents and we'd be, you know, getting drunk together and doing shots and, <laughs> and, and, and like they became, they were always my best friends, but they be- truly became my best friends. And, uh, then when the band started happening, they were flying all around the country. They came over to England one time and, uh, saw us at Reading uh, festival in 2002, stood on the side of the stage and watched us play to a hundred thousand people. And just, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a, an amazing, uh, amazing trip and they've been there to, uh, to see it all unfold. No, that's cool. Was there ever a moment like, you know, as uh, you were, you know, I mean, cause did you actually graduate from college with a degree? I didn't. So I got what was the equivalent of like an associate's degree, um, mm-hmm. which I never, I, I don't even know if I could get that now if I went back to the university of Florida <laughs> to give me my AA degree, but I got, had enough credits to get an A an associate's degree. 
Yeah. But by the time that happened, you know, just so many things were happening with the band. And, uh, you know, my parents were actually disappointed when I told them that I had, I had, uh, quit college because I dropped out, uh, halfway through my, uh, almost third year of school. Right. And, uh, just the energy and from what was happening within the band, I, I had never been so sure of anything in my life. And looking back, <laughs> I didn't have much to go on. I was, you know, 19, 18, 19 years old, but there was just this groundswell. There was something happening that I couldn't explain and I couldn't explain it to my parents and it wasn't monetarily happening yet. Um, it wasn't, uh, you know, we weren't, uh, uh, getting recognized around town or anything. It was, but we were starting to build up little pockets around Florida that was just undeniable because I would watch the other bands that would play, you know, we'd pull into Daytona beach and we, the first time we played this place called up and Adam, there might've been, I don't know, 40, 50 people there. And, and a lot of them were, were there because they were friends or they were the draw of the band that was playing after us. And, and then, but when, when we would come on, like people would pay attention and then, and it was just, we were just kind of, uh, you know, lighting these little fires everywhere, everywhere we went. And, uh, one thing, one thing led to another. And by that point I was just like, something's happening here everywhere we go. And I'd, I'd watch the other bands play and this isn't a knock on them, but first band would go up and you'd see people kind of maybe dancing or whatever. And then the second band would play and then we'd play and it was just like, you know, the whole, the roof would go off the place. And then the band after us would play and it would die down again. And I was seeing that night after night after night. And, uh, so it was kind of like there was, there was, we, and we all felt it and we weren't, we weren't cocky. It wasn't like ego. We were just, we were very driven. Right. And I'm sure, I mean, to that point, it was like, like you said, you were the most sure that you could be of this thing, but that, you know, you do reach that fork in the road where it's like, listen, I'm so busy that I can't, I don't even care about this school stuff. So like, you know, but I, I'm going to have to talk to my parents about it. And usually that's not a fun conversation to have. Well, no, and it wasn't because they were, you know, very supportive of music. It wasn't from the same, oh, are you going to be a long haired, you know, rock and roll or right? not going to do anything with your life. It wasn't, that wasn't the stance, the stance from them. It was more of, you know, you have this education. Um, I was getting um, uh, grants, like free, basically free money to go to school. And, um, you know, I had this whole thing kind of ahead of me and they're just like, why don't you just feel like I got two and a half more years, just finish, you know, get the degree and you have something to fall back on. And, um, you know, I, I kind of knew then and definitely know now that, that I was getting my education one gig at a time. I was learning about business with the guys in my band. I was learning how to negotiate with club owners and all this stuff was real life stuff that, uh, and not knocking education at all. Um, but just for me, by the time I was two years into college, I was like, I'm not learning anything here. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm learning how to study and regurgitate information that I couldn't give, couldn't care less about. And, uh, so I had, uh, you know, in hindsight, it's always 2020. I think I made the right decision. I don't ever regret not finishing school. Sure. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially too, cause the, I, you know, the idea of, pursuing something like this, which, you know, may seem so fleeting because you're like, well, you know, like this, this band and this momentum like could go away tomorrow. So, you know, if I don't do it now, like I can't like recreate this in a couple of years. Well, yeah. And again, to your point a moment ago, cause you know, you said you don't really have, to, I didn't, we didn't have time to think of anything. It was, no. it was <laughs> happening. It was happening so fast. The, the, that time period between 93 and like when we got signed two years later in 95 to capital, it was just 
every day we'd get up and we, you know, we were all living together. I was living with, with our bass player, Roger, living with, uh, with Vinny. And we would get up in the morning and, and we were starting to get fan mail. We were writing people back. And, you know, by 1996, we were getting four or 500 letters a week and we were writing fans back every fan would get a letter back from us. We were spending money we didn't have, even if they didn't include a, a stamp in, in their envelope, we would write them back. We were, we were a machine. You know, I always said that our band was, might not have been as, you know, as good as eight out of the 10 bands on the bill, but we worked harder and we were better at it. We do, we were, and you know, and that's not being egotistical. We just, we had, I met five other people that were the most driven people I'd ever met. And, uh, that's, that's how really how it happened. We were just focused and driven. It was, we had fun, we were young, but everything else, you know, and we saw a lot of bands fall to the wayside of the, of the partying and the, you know, wanting to be in, in five bands instead of concentrating on one. And, and, uh, all that was kind of pushed to the side. We, we, we hyper-focused on less than Jake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, and I think that, you know, is apparent by, you know, the fact that you guys toured so relentlessly you know, for many, many years where it's just like not only, you know, in the States, but, you know, you did so much stuff internationally when a lot of bands, you know, maybe didn't concentrate on that particular market for, um, you know, another couple of years or whatever. So it's uh, the work ethic definitely seeps through just because, you know, at that time, too, like you were talking about earlier, it wasn't like there was a blueprint beyond like, just get on the road. Like <laughs> that's what you got to do. You got to get on the road and, and tour um, and hopefully get a record deal. Yeah. And, and we were, we were kind of, we were drawing the blueprints. We didn't really know it, but, but we, we were, we were at least drawing our own blueprint. Um, you know, we were methodical. I remember we wanted to take off in 94 and tour and, and, and we knew that we weren't ready and um, not a lot of bands can say that or, or admit that. And we, we just kept focusing on Florida, kept honing our craft, kept writing songs. We were in that warehouse space Back in those days, five, six nights a week, we get out there at, you know, eight, nine at night and be out there till two, three in the morning. So we were rehearsing, you know, 30, 35 hours a week, plus during the day, you know, working whatever, you know, pizza delivery job we were doing, then get home and do some fan mail. And it was just, it was just constant. And uh, we, you know, when we did the first U.S. tour, we, which was in the summer of 1995, we were on a lot of compilations and compilations were, were a great way to get your music heard in, in pockets of the country. So there'd be a, be a, um, a guy putting out a compilation in Madison, Wisconsin. And, and uh, his name was Brad. He was rhetoric records and we'd have a song on rhetoric. And then in New Jersey, we'd have a song on their compilation. And then in Chicago, we'd have a song on this guy's compilation. And we reached out six months before we, we the, the, the van peeled out of Gainesville to start the tour we were on the phone and we were reaching out to these people and saying, Hey, who can we play with on this night? We got Tuesday, June 23rd open Chicago. Okay, cool. We'll play with slapstick and we'll play with this band. We know slapstick has a draw. They're from Chicago. They're also on the comp that we're on. Cool. So that first U S tour, we did 48 uh, shows in 50 days and it was crazy, (laughs) but we were young, we were young and and we were able to do it. And uh, you know, there was probably um, being honest, out of those 48 shows, probably a dozen of them that were very ill attended, maybe three people here, eight people here, 25 people here, but the rest of them were packed. 
because we did the work ahead of time. We took out great merchandise. <clears throat> we had screens in the back of our van that when we start running low on shirts, we would go buy <clears throat> more shirts, uh, just white plain shirts. And we would, we were silk screening our own shirts at night after the shows. They'd be all over people's houses, drying, uh, <laughs> yeah. hanging over couches. Um, and uh, that that first U.S. tour, and I am always uh, say this from a bragging standpoint, but I've I've always been proud of this. At first U.S. tour, we came home with three thousand dollars. You know, that's very successful. It's yeah, and and the writing was on the wall. It was like, okay, we know what we're doing. And and sure. again, that's not bragging. That's just I met the right guys, and we were just. We just um, like I said, all systems go. Yeah, yeah, and and we knew that pulling into Chicago and playing with slapstick and playing with this band, we were, we were guaranteed to a crowd. We didn't come home with three grand by happenstance. <laughs> that happened because we were playing in front of people that were going to buy our merch. If we didn't play to anybody, we weren't going to sell anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, because the band has, like you were talking about, been so, you know, DIY and very focused in regards to, uh, you know, your business and being able to, you know, not only make sure that the, musical craft was there, but that the work ethic and the business side of it was all kind of flowing in the same motion. Um, you know, as you guys started to, you know, I'm sure get interest from other labels beyond, you know, like signing the capital and stuff like that was, you know, was getting into that side of the music industry, uh, I guess daunting or scary, or was it just like all of it was exciting? Um, yeah, there, I mean, you know, there was a, a couple arguments here and there where things would get heated. Cause we just, we, at some point, you know, as a, a moment ago, I said, we were writing the blueprint, but at the same time, we didn't know, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were young and it was like, okay, well, we need to get an entertainment attorney. Well, who the hell are we going to get? I don't know. No. And it, and so, yeah, but it, but for to answer your question, <laughs> you just said it, it was mostly exciting. You know, there was a few little uh, hiccups, like I just laid out with like attorneys and this and that. And what do we do? But for the most part, it was just, it was exciting because there was people paying attention to us uh, outside of this little, little punk scene that we came from. We were starting to get attention from labels. And, um, and at the same time, we knew that we were getting attention because, uh, not because we were the greatest, uh, cutest uh, young band in the world. We weren't, but because uh, some some label heads, uh, some guy pushing buttons thought he could turn this into some sales figures. So we knew it was a business. You know, we weren't deluded in that in that aspect. We were like, you know what this this is a this is a business, and either we're going to stay on the path that we're on, and and we can just play house shows and and make our own t shirts, or we're going to go this way and see what this has to offer. And we went the other way. Right. And do you, you know, because of that uh, transition, especially during that time too, you know, that was the uh, era. I mean, this word is meaningless now, but just the idea of, you know, like, oh, sellouts and like, you know, you you guys doing this, you know, jumping from this label to up to a major label. Um, You know, did you guys receive, I guess, flack during that time or was it just like, well, I didn't. I mean, I, (laughs) yeah, we we received a lot of it, but I wouldn't tolerate it because my whole position was, has anybody ever called Michael Jordan a sellout? You can, why does sure. he why does he have to get 10 million dollars to throw a ball through a hoop because he deserves it because he worked his ass off that's yeah. what he gets well, you know he doesn't know ian mckay that's why well there you go and yeah. um so i never bought into that word i thought it was a bunch of bullshit and i still think so and now it's like kids laugh no kids today would care what label you're on 
They don't care if you're on TV or, I mean, there really is no TV. Everything's internet based. So everyone's on the internet. Johnny come lately in his bedroom and the guitar is on YouTube. So we're all on the internet. So the, the playing field's different, but, uh, but yeah, I was, uh, you know, for a time there in the nineties, the band didn't want me to give interviews because I would tear people a new one. I'd be like, this is a bunch of bullshit. Don't you, you want to sell out thing, Capitol records, whatever. I, and I would, I would look them in the, and they're like, you can't say that. I'd be like, I want to make $10 million and live in Beverly Hills. Don't you? <laughs> I <Yeah>. mean, <laughs> no, it's true. And if, and if you're going to give me that money to play music, shit, all the better, you know, right. and there's, there's nothing wrong to say that to me. <laughs> totally. Totally. You know, I, especially too, where it's like, cause I mean, you know, that I never malaise, got my $10 million though. Yeah. To be fair, I understand. <laughs> but yeah, it was like that, that malaise that existed in the, you know, mid nineties where it's just like, you know, people flinging stones at jawbreaker and like all this other stuff. It, you know, in, it, uh, even in like almost immediate retrospect, it's just like, why are you y- y- castigating these bands when theoretically, as long as like they're not all of a sudden turning into like a pop band where it's like between one record now, all of a sudden they're a boy band like that. You know, that clearly is the idea of a well, sellout. These are the but- same people that were coming up with Adam Sandler on their shirt and talking about SNL and, and, and all the movies he was making or whatever famous actor in the 90s. And, and it's like, wait a second. Is, is that guy a sellout? <laughs> well, well, it's different because how's it different? He's selling himself. Right. I'm selling myself through my music. So, yep. yeah, it was a it was a strange time, and it's it's only hell. You know, you were there, you remember it, and anybody listening to this is going to understand what we're talking about. But if I don't know, there, we have a lot of younger fans now that uh, you know our our fans that were uh, our age back in the '90s have kids now, and and they're fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen that might listen to this, and they're going to be like, "What are they talking about?" They're just right. it's going to go right over their head. Like the, people used to care what label you were on. They actually <laughs> cared if you got an MTV. That was like a thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. You have a song and a commercial. Oh my God. Heart, you know, heartbeat still. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, as you, like you, you're talking about earlier in regards to, you know, you getting ready for your first tours and you starting to experience life on the road outside of, you know, Florida and Gainesville in particular, um, you know, did you like the touring experience initially? I mean, you know, clearly you're an outgoing person and an extrovert. So, you know, those people, uh, fare much better on the road than, you know, introverts, <laughs> but you know, was there any kind of, uh, I guess struggle with you being out on the road, uh, or was it all just kind of like, no, I really enjoy this. I want to lean into it. Nah, you know, again, I found, I found the right people to, to do it. Um, you know, we had a couple horn players early on that really weren't, uh, well, I can't, say they weren't cut out for the road. They were cut out for the road while they were in the band, but they ended up not really wanting to be on the road anymore. But the the core members of the band, me, Buddy, and Roger, and, and hell, JR has been with us now, our sax player for 20 years, um, you know, and, and Vinny, the, the the core members that were that were in the band, we we were meant to do this, you know. Uh, the things that, that I hated about the road are still the same things I hate. It's like, um, you're going to be gone, you're going to miss weddings, funerals, uh, birthdays, um, uh, milestones of family and, and, and friends and things. And, uh, but, um, this is what we signed up for. So, uh, I've gotten used to all those things and, uh, you know, you try to make up for it when, when you are home and, uh, you know, that's the, really the only downside of it. Everything else, uh, is is great. Although I could do without airplanes and airports, but again, it comes with the territory. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. This is all part of the bargain that you weren't exactly sure what you were making when you first started to go on the road. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a, you know, there's an old joke in the industry. It's like, uh, 
you know, I, I get, I get paid to, to sit around for 23 hours a day, you know, yeah. and, uh, the hour, <laughs> yeah. the, the hour on stage is the, is the fun part, you know, and, uh, it's, there's a lot of downtime and it's, uh, you know, and again, in, in those early days, um, you know, we, uh, we, we made use of our downtime. We were constantly, you know, checking out the local record stores and dropping off seven inch records and, uh, going in and shaking hands and trying to do as many interviews as we can. And, um, there was this, uh, a thing called zines back, which was short for <laughs> magazines and, and kids would show up, Hey man, can you do an interview for my zine? Sure. So we were always doing interviews and, and, uh, poor, poor man's social media, you know? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. H- hand to mouth, making sure everyone understands where you're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, as you started to, you know, navigate through all of the different, uh, you know, r- records you guys were putting out and all the different, you know, record cycles and understanding more of the business, um, you know, business and art are clearly, you know, at not polar opposite sides of one another, but there's a, a you know, a conflict that exists within those two. Um, being, you know, one of the main drivers of the band in regards to the business, uh, you know, alongside, you know, managers and other people that you've worked with over the years, um, was that uh, a, I guess, difficult thing for you to uh, kind of tackle? Because, uh, you know, some people are uncomfortable with the idea of being like, oh, I'm a business person, you know? Um how did that kind of uh, you know kick around in your head? Yeah, you know, we we never really thought about it. Uh, it was just part of what we did. We <laughs> we we had managers over the years that we gave a lot of money to, and, and and no disrespect to any of them, but we didn't let them manage us. You know, we probably should have just had a glorified a guy that booked our hotels and booked the tour bus, and uh, you know, sure. every <laughs> once in a while, you know, listen to our grievances. Hey, you know, my drummer's being an asshole, or you know, Roger did this, but at the end of the day, we managed ourselves. And, um, so in terms of like, you know, thinking of ourselves as businessmen, we, we were that way from the get go and it, and it just kept, it just kept going. Um, so it was never like a thing where, you know, I'm just the artist, uh, you know, I, I, I let them, and I've heard plenty of people say this and it always shocked me. You, you can have that position when you're Madonna, you can be like, right. that's my business manager's job. I'm the artist. I don't give interviews, you know? Well, okay. You play stadiums and make $50 billion. Um, but when you're out there doing what we do, and I've seen a lot of bands, you know, with less stature that don't, you know, back in the day, didn't sell as many tickets as us. And you'd, you'd be like, so, Hey man, um, you know, we're thinking about doing this. Would you be interested? Oh dude, I don't handle that. Uh, you got to talk to my manager. And I would, I would just <laughs> sit and look at these people like, are you fucking kidding me? Like right. for real, like you can't have a conversation with me. And, um, but I've also grown to look at that differently now as I gotten older and I respect it from the position of, you know what? Some people aren't cut out to do that. That's not their thing. They're just meant to maybe get on stage and sing. So I have, uh, I have respect for that in a, in a, in a light today differently than I did back then. But for us, it was all about, it was all encompassing. You know, we wanted to be part of the business and we wanted to be part of the band. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And especially like you were talking about with everybody kind of being on the same page in regards to handling all of those different aspects of it, um, you know, because there are some bands where it's like one person is the main driver. And like you said, the other four are just kind of like, where do I show up? You know, when's the van leaving or whatever? <laughs> yeah. You know, and when and, and one band is always going to have that one person most of the time. And, uh, for us, it was, it was Vinny. Well, when he was in the, for 26 years, he was that guy. He was very business minded and, and I'm, I'm giving credit where, where credit's due, but we were certainly all right there with him. And, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, there, there's always, you know, one person that's just like that, 
that guy. And um, he was uh, early on, like after the shows, he the business was still rolling with him when you know some of us would go out and cut our teeth and have some drinks and relax and uh, you know. So, but uh, at the at the end of the day, you know, as a whole, it was always about the business. And what was the what, what was the betterment for the band? What how could we how could we do better than we did yesterday? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this may be a tough question or moment. It doesn't even have to be one particular moment um, for you to pinpoint. But the idea of like when the band started to kind of feel real for you, um, you know, and it doesn't have to be this like, you know, <laughs> this crystalline moment of like, oh, it was when I signed the contract or when we played in front of, you know, 10,000 people or whatever. Um, you know, when did you personally kind of feel like, dude, this is wild. Like, you know, these 10 people up front are totally losing their mind to us or whatever. August 13th, 1994 at Janice Landing Concert Theater in um, uh, St. Petersburg, Florida. Less Than Jake, Black Train Jack, and the Mighty Mighty Bostones. Black Train Jack was on tour with the Bostones, and we um, got the opening slot on that tour. Magadog, that band I talked about earlier, were on the show. Someone in the band got sick, and we were next in line. We got the phone call, drove down to St. Petersburg. We were the first band on the bill. So this was one year before our first U.S. tour. So we were still, but we were building up a name around Florida. And uh, that was our biggest show we had played up to that point. Uh, that uh, It's an outdoor venue in downtown St. Petersburg. It used to be called Janice Landing. Um, and uh, it's now called Janice Live. And um, we were first on the bill. And probably there was maybe three or 400 people when we went on. Uh, and this is a venue that holds about 1500. So there's people kind of interspersed. And by the end of our set, there was probably, and it was sold out that night. There was probably eight or 900 people watching us and, mm. um, we killed it being, and, but we were also pandering to an audience that loved this kind of music. They were there for the boss tones, you know, sure. and black train Jack, um, who, uh, played after us. We were kind of like this, uh, they're uh, the odd band out, the yeah. odd <laughs> band out. Yeah. And I, I kind of felt from that night and, uh, and no disrespect to them. They were a great band, but, uh, we sold out of merchandise that night. And after the show, I see Dickie Barrett walking around with a, a glow in the dark, less than Jake shirt on. And I'm like, holy shit. And I just, I, that was, that was the, really the first point. I'm like, okay, now we just got to take this to Orlando, to Jacksonville, to Atlanta, to Charlotte to Richmond, to DC, to New York, and just keep doing this. Yeah. And no, that's very, very uh, specific, but, at, you know, honestly, kind of very romantic because it, it, it is those moments of just like, wow, we did well at this thing and people recognized us and like we quote unquote captured a crowd that, yes, may have been, you know, <laughs> predisposed to like us, but like we actually did the thing. Yeah. And, and the, the second uh, moment was about about six months later, um, seven months later. It was uh, would have been March of '95. I was sitting in Mirror Image Studios in Gainesville, where we had uh, we tracked Pezcore, Losing Streak, and Hello Rockview there, and uh, we were recording Pezcore. And uh, I remember we we're just kind of recording everything, but this was the first time we're like all the faders on the soundboard were going up, and like our our producer engineer Bob McPeak, Bob was like. It's like, all right, guys, come on in. We're gonna gonna have a listen down, you know, which you're gonna go listen to all the tracks and and hear kind of everything, you know, and make sure everything's there if you want to add different stuff. And uh, 
<laughs> a producer's trick to make sure everything sounds great is just to floor it. It was like on volume 11, you know, and so it's just <laughs> boom. And he put up Liquor Store, the first track on the record. And um, I just remember it it just sounding massive in that room. And, and when the horns came in, um, <clears throat> uh, the beginning of the song, the, the horn hook, and I'm just sitting back and I remember going, a lot of people are going to hear this. And, and I wasn't being cocky. I'm just like, a lot of people are going to hear this and a lot of people are going to love this. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the second moment. And then it was a couple months later that we went on that first U.S. tour. Yeah, no, that's really, that, that's cool. I, I have to say, your uh, your memory is quite impressive, my friend. I got a memory of an <laughs> elephant. It does me no good. If they had uh, Jeopardy for memory, I'd, I'd like smoke everybody. I'd be the champion forever, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're like, but it's only with my experiences. Don't ask me anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the uh, last couple of things I want to hit on, um, you know, this may s- seem really random that I'm bringing this up, but I think it definitely speaks to, um, you know, unique experiences where, you know, you guys did that Project Revolution tour, which is probably one of the most weird tour experiences, I'm sure, from your end of things. Uh, and then also just an eclectic mix of bands. Um, you know, what what was your experience on that? Was it just like, wow, this is weird. We're playing in the daytime and Snoop Dogg's over there and Linkin Park's headlining this thing. Like, what what, what the hell's happening here? Um, so we really, again, and this was no different than us getting on that compilation in in Milwaukee or Madison and getting on that compilation in Chicago. We did this and, you know, the internet was around in 04, but it wasn't like it is now, but we did it for print promotion. We did it to have our name associated with that because Lincoln Park in 04 was one of the biggest bands on the planet. Snoop Dogg, Corn. Uh, we were out there with the used who were also on Warner Brothers records with us. So we got a really good push through Warner Brothers to be out there. But our posters were in every venue. Uh, it was it was name recognition. And to this day, uh, we're still feeling the benefits 16 years later. There's still people showing up going, man, I first heard of you at Project Revolution. So um, and we knew we had been a band at that point for 12 years. We weren't young and we could have went out on our own tour that summer and made more money on our own. And we, we took a pay cut to go play first in an amphitheater because we knew our name being associated would, would, would further, further than further the band. Right. Yeah. That this would be, you would be playing in front of people that, that you know, clearly have no clue. It was who you a guys different are. market from warp tour. It was different. It was something that, uh, you know, at this point in our career right now, we'd, we'd probably do again. You know, we'd probably go if we can gain that many new fans and and a different people that have never heard of us or maybe heard of us back in the day, but aren't giving us a chance. And and, and we still think we're relevant and and, and are as good of a live band as we've ever ever been or better. We want to get it in front of those people. And uh, so we were always I I always equated to uh, to tilling the soil on the farm. You know, every every other uh, every other season, you got to till that soil to make sure it doesn't get, uh, you know, so the whatever. I'm not a farmer, but um, (laughs) right. The wheat to grow and whatever. Yeah, yeah. you know, we had we got to till the till the fan, the soil of the fan base, so to speak. And uh, so 12 years into our career, we were we were still doing that. And that's why we took that uh, to and we had a fuck. Yeah, we had a blast. That was a. It was a great summer, uh, met a lot of, uh, a lot of great people out there and, uh, had some great shows. Sure. Sure. Um, the, you know, because you guys have, you know, existed for a long period of time and you have all these inflection points of, uh, when people can get into you, you know, whether it's the project revolution tour or, you know, like you, even back in the day with, you know, all the comps and 
everything that you were participating in. What's kind of the, the most uh, you know common experiences that people have, regardless of age, that come up to you and are like, "Oh, I, I this is how I got into you guys," or "I heard about you through this." Whether it was like you know, I know the answer. Don't, Okay, hit me, hit me. Tony Hawk Pro Skater. I was, I was literally going to ask you that, but you, you win. Yeah, no, without a doubt. I mean, that was just unbelievable. The mileage, and uh, we're on the new Tony Hawk game that is coming out. So, which is cool. Yeah, Um, yeah. And uh, but that was, um, yeah, you know, that was incredible. Having having uh, our song on there, uh, just you can't even put a price. uh, How much value that gave the band. Right. <laughs> Just pe and like people, I'm sure, um, either, either, you know, cause by that point, you know, you guys had obviously been a band for a while. So the idea of people either hearing you for the very first time or on the flip side, being reminded how much they like you guys in the first place because of the video game. Well, that, and, and it's funny, you know, <laughs> that, that game, I specifically, not just one, a, a number of people would, would say, man, I was just this video game nerd and that song it that I had never been to a concert before and I came to see you guys are my first concert. And this is like some kid that's like 19 you're like you never been to a concert? Why is this your first one? <laughs> I've just never really been into music. I've just been a video game kid, but I kept hearing your song. I'm like I have to see this band. So That's incredible. That's the kind of that's what that video or that uh, video video game did for us. Things like that that you can't put a price on. A kid never would have heard of us, never would have saw us play if it wasn't for that video game. Right. It, it, that's like a completely different notion of uh you know whatever hearing minor threat for the first time. It, it's like the you know unlocking that person's experience to be like, "Oh, so this is what live music is like." It's like, "Holy crap." Yeah, I mean, <laughs> he you know, he this this pale kid was stuck in a sunless room playing video games since he was, you know, 8 years old he, and uh and and now he's uh going to concerts. <laughs> yeah, you're like, "Wow, that's that's good. I'm glad we I'm glad we brought your life down to this." <laughs> um and clearly, you know, throughout your guys' career, there's, you know, ebbs and flows in regards to popularity. And, you know, sometimes, you know, that's when after a band has kind of reached a plateau in, you know, the States, that's kind of when they're like, oh, well, you know, wow, people are really enjoying us in Europe and, you know, kind of figuring out how that works into one another. Um but you know, since you've been able to see you know both highs and lows in regards to that, was it always was it difficult to kind of come back to, for lack of a better term, like real life and like being home and being like, okay, we're we're not going to be on tour for the next year and a half. Um, you know, how how did that? Uh, I guess how did that kind of knock around in your head as you were trying to you know uh, kind of figure out the next steps? Are you speaking like prior to this lockdown that we're on right now? Like, yes, okay. pre-pandemic. Well, we, we, yes, we never we never took more than two months off from the road. We toured. There you go. We, we toured our ass off. We never stopped. There was a lot of bands that 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 stopped running for three, four, five, six years, and when they came back, they found their a lot of their fan base wasn't there. Um, we were always afraid of that, so we never stopped. We never stopped, and uh, you know, there's sometimes you'll read a comment on on YouTube, or I'll I'll go back to my hometown for the holidays and there'll be something they don't mean it like it's not like a snide remark but like you guys are still around and i just I, there was a point where i don't know maybe maybe 15 years and halfway through our career up to this point i'd be kind of offended by like what do you mean you don't know what we're doing it's like now i just chuckle i'm like you have no idea <laughs> i just played <laughs> to sixty thousand people last week in switzerland at a festival so yeah we're still doing it and i kind of downplay yeah we're we're still around <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but and it's but yeah. but but there's 
there's the other side of it too, like kind of the being humble, what you were kind of alluding to a moment ago. Um, you know, the day after we played at the Greenfield Festival in, in Switzerland to, uh, to 60,000 people, we were in Italy the next night at a, at a punk squat playing to 600 Italian punks. So, <laughs> which that show was just as great and crazy as the 60,000, but in a way different way. So we, uh, we, we still, that, that's been our career. You know, one day we're in, uh, in the sweaty, dingy, dirty club in the middle of nowhere. You don't even know where you're at to play in a, a huge festival and, and a gig's a gig. And we, we give 110% at, at each one. And I get, I guess I'll, you know, to button that up, the uh, it's easy to get jaded you know it's easy to you know start to like not care about the thing that you have been you know <laughs> using the metaphor we were doing previously tilling the soil and planting the seeds and waiting for them to grow um you know but clearly you still care about you know music not only from a touring perspective but releasing music and you know not it, clearly you have to do it from a uh, artistic perspective and then you know a business perspective but you know uh, this may sound totally just overly simplified but like why do you still care you know because because we're still doing it for the same reasons um we really are because all of us are, are are smart enough and all of us uh certainly could have done other things at any point with our lives to to support ourselves and our families financially um but we still we still get off on making music and getting in front of a live audience we still love it it's in our blood uh, I, I call us lifers. This is what we do, you know, and I, and I, when I hop on stage, uh, I, I don't feel any different than, uh, getting on stage in 1992 at that first show. I, I truly don't. And I think I can speak for the rest of the guys in the band. It's, that's what we live for is that, that interaction and seeing and feeding off that energy from, from the crowd. Right. No, that's cool. That's a very, uh, a very beautiful, beautifully put answer, my friend. It's yeah, it's not a stock made up answer. It's, it's, it's the no, truth. It's the truth. Um, but, uh, I hate airports, like I said a minute ago, way more than I hate them in 1995. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I never step foot in an airport again, I, it'd be great. If, you know, when they do that whole time travel Star Trek shit, I'll be, I'll be the first one in line. <laughs> right, totally. You're like, I, I, actually, I'm right. I'm trying to invent that technology right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. I really appreciate you uh, going down memory lane and uh, you know talking about all these things. And thank you for having me. I really uh, appreciate you uh, t- taking a trip down memory lane with me. How about that? How about Chris? And how about I just loved being able to be like, "Hey, was uh was was Tony Hawk pro skater like important in your band's career?" <laughs> I just love that because I mean, that was such a foundational video game for so many of us. And like now that the game has recently been re-released, it's going to introduce all these bands to a hopefully a whole different you know, age bracket of kids. And it's just, it's great. So thank you very much, Chris, for coming on the show. Thank you very much to uh, Becky, his publicist for setting this up because, uh, yeah, I just always like when people think of the show and say, Hey, this would be a fun opportunity for you. Fun press op as it were. Next week is Joe Taylor from the band knuckle puck. If you are not into knuckle puck, you should probably check them out. They're really, really fun pop punk, but like done in a way that isn't like just horrifically cheesy. You know, like you've heard those bands, right? And uh, trust me, I like those bands just as much as the next person. But when there is a, uh, <laughs> I guess, an air of professionalism about the whole pop punk genre, uh, it just makes me like the band that much more. And Knuckle Puck absolutely delivers that in spades. So that's what we got next week. Joe Taylor's on the show. And hopefully you will have a good week. And until next week, please be safe, everybody.